Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to How to Date, a show about how to master the messy, complex and downright bizarre world of dating when you really didn't think you'd be back here again. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm a psychologist, I'm one year out of my marriage, I'm a mum and I'm immersed in the world of online dating. Hi, I'm also your host, Monique Robin. I'm a mum of four kids and a yoga teacher trying to find men who like me rather than my limber joints. So, Amantha, who have we got on the show this week? So today we've got another psychologist, Dr. Simon Moss, who's been a friend of mine for many, many years. Oh, wasn't he your supervisor when you were doing your PhD? No, he wasn't my supervisor. I think he lectured me in one subject when I was doing my PhD. So Simon's interesting because he is really interested in counterintuitive psychology findings. So things that are not obvious. So I was really keen to have him on the show because he shares a lot of things that are really strange, but very practical things that we can use to be better at dating. Oh, that's so good because obviously our overt um, tricks aren't working. So some more subtle ones would be good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Hey, just before we get to today's show, Amantha, you may not know this, but lately Amantha has been called by various breakfast shows to ask if she'd give an opinion in dating. I, Amantha, find that absolutely hilarious, and I'll tell you why. Given the fact that How to Date was born out of our extreme dating ineptitude, you have somehow (laughs) been perceived as an expert on dating. I know it blows my mind and because I can share what our guests are sharing with me, I feel comfortable doing that. So this week just passed, I was on channel 10 talking about dating advice, but it's very strange. You know what I reckon it is? So I'm the yoga teacher, but yet they don't ask for my opinion. (laughs) You're the psychologist. That's why they think you know. I find this hilarious because for those of you who don't know Amantha, she's extraordinarily ethical. Like in our younger days when she first got her um, her stripes and someone would say, oh, you're a psychologist. So my mum, she does this to me and she does that to me. And Amantha would be the first to say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't give you a pr- an opinion in the context of psychologist because I'm a organizational psychologist. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but yet all of a sudden the dating Guernsey has been put on Amantha and now you're like so willing to just share all your opinions. What's with that? (laughs) Well, it's more, I'm really comfortable sharing what I've learned on the show. So in terms of calling myself a dating expert, absolutely not. I think it's obvious that I'm not, but we started this show to get better at dating and to learn about dating. So what I am enjoying is being able to learn from all these experts and then spread that knowledge more widely through some of the TV and writing that I'm doing. I think that just people misunderstand the term psychologist. I find that people will assume that because I'm a psychologist, I can help them with all sorts of things that they're dealing with. But it's like, I know how to help people at work. You yeah. don't know how to help people if they're going through a breakdown or something like that. You must get lots of people when you say I'm a psychologist and then, of course, that gets misconstrued by the more ignorant of us uh, to think that you then have information on interpersonal psychology. Do people just all of a sudden want to seek your professional advice? Well, it's funny because if someone's talking to me about an issue around mental health, I'm not a clinical psychologist and I haven't been trained in how to manage someone that has clinical depression or anxiety. Like I just never give advice on that. But dating though, dating is where I break the rule clearly, but it's, but I'm not even breaking the rule because I'm simply repeating what I'm learning on the show. So Amantha, how was your week in dating? 
Uh, I'm still on the dating holiday, which sounds glamorous, but it just means all my apps are on pause while I enjoy not dating. Okay, Uh, fair enough. Yeah, how about you? How was your week? Look, I'm not so much on a holiday. I'm just changing the way I've been dating recently and that's mainly because I've completely lost my voice it's getting better now and I know it sounds funny but because I teach yoga and it's a lot about projecting your voice I've really got to protect it and so I've tried to avoid getting in a situation where I have to either talk over the phone that's like the worst because I can't rely on body language or meeting in person so what I have been doing though is I've been messaging a lot (laughs) a great way to start a relationship yeah but you know I don't laugh it's actually had some advantages being forced to have that restriction because you actually get to really think about the questions you want to ask somebody so there's this one guy that I have been messaging and it is worth mentioning because we have sent a lot of messages now I am sure that he thinks that I'm maybe 50 kilos bigger or a foot shorter because how often do you buy the explanation, no, we can't meet on Zoom because I can't talk to you. No, we can't go out because I can't talk to you. You need to apply that hot tip we had a few weeks ago where you hold up today's newspaper with you with it. And I remember you said, who gets the newspaper? I do. So you can borrow my weekend newspaper and do that. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I actually did say to him, which was quite funny, this is an aside, this isn't actually the situation I wanted to run past you, but I did say to him, look, if you really don't believe me, I'm happy to stand in silence on Zoom so you can check me out. And he gave me this really funny response. He said, oh, no, if you feel uncomfortable, we won't do it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he really does think I'm trying to hide something. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so so we all do have our guard up, don't we? But anyway, so we're texting back and forth and – You know, I usually say right from the outset when I message guys, oh, I've got four children. I feel like I need to let them know because as I've said before, that's usually the point when I'm ghosted. Mm. And this guy who, as you know, is counter to my normal dating rules, has no children. Ah. And that usually worries me. And I think that might be interesting to our listeners because men or women with no children often think that they are at the advantage because they get to choose whether they date someone with or without children because they've got the perceived less baggage. But in actual fact, to a woman or a man with children, I believe it's quite possible that someone without children is seen as baggage because they just don't understand our situation. Yeah, 100%. I wouldn't call it baggage, but I just feel like there's just a lack of empathy for what it's like to be a parent. It's it's a different world. Yeah, and once you've made this huge life change of having children, I think you change a lot. And mm. I almost feel like I've become a tiny bit arrogant when I sort of meet someone without children. I think to myself, they are not as grown up as I am because, boy, (laughs) did I have to grow up once I had kids. Now, let me say that has been proven by many men that I've met to be inaccurate, but the bias does exist. Mm. Anyway, this guy, I told him right from the outset, I have four children and I also said to him, in a joking manner, read super insecure. Um, Oh, people usually ghost me at this point, especially men without children, to which he said, no, I'm like a grandparent. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I love the fact that you have children because I love children, but I don't want any for myself so I can give them back once I'm done with them. And in my head I'm thinking that that's really screwed up because (laughs) if you're going to have an enduring relationship with me, 
You're not going to be giving them back to anybody. (laughs) Stepped out of the year. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Like I don't want him to take over any parental role. But the thing is, if we're going to have an enduring relationship, he's going to have to realize that I come with kids, four of them. Yeah. Anyway. So me being overly emphatic about the fact I have four kids to really get that point over the line, I think created a culture where he felt the need in every communication we had to mention my children. And that's ringing alarm bells for me. So, for example, I said to him, I'm going to take the dog to the beach for a walk because, as you know, I've got a new puppy and my dog just goes nuts at the beach and it gives me so much joy, to which he then wrote back saying, oh, that would be so gorgeous to see your four children enjoy (laughs) your four flashing neon lights. Children enjoy watching the little puppy at the beach. And I'm thinking, huh? No, I'm not going to have four children and a dog at the beach because I'm telling you there'll be a drowning. This is what I'm thinking. In my head. (laughs) But I think it was his way of saying, hey, I'm still not perturbed by the fact you have four children. But it became really annoying. I was telling him that it was really great to go to a shop and buy a dress. And he goes, oh, what's the dress look like? That's nice because that's a bit flirty. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I really like it, hoping he'd say something like, are you going to show me or, you know, a bit Mm. flirty because we're just, you know, we're just texting, to which he said, what did your kids think? Oh, God. (laughs) And I'm like, I didn't model it for them. (laughs) So we have this great conversation, but I am not joking Everything comes back to him bringing my children. Is he trying to be stepped out of the year? Or, uh-huh. or now hear me out because I want advice on this, or maybe, you know, that theory, those who doth protest too much, maybe he is actually worried, read scared shitless that I have four children. Yeah, gosh, it could go either way, couldn't it? Mm. He could be either really into you, which also worries me, if he's just become into you via messaging because there's a whole lot of projection going on if he's done that because you haven't spoken yet. No. Um, so, so A, that's a worry if he's just trying really, really hard to impress you by dropping in the kids given you've signalled that that's a bit of a sticking point with you or a sore point mm. or he's shit scared about four kids. I know, and I fluctuate between the both depending on the context he says these things because he's not completely consistent. Sometimes he will be a little bit paranoid that I'm hiding something, which is why I won't verbally speak to him or that, you know, um, I won't physically see him because he said to me, you know, you don't have to talk. We could just hang out and sit in the park and have a coffee. But, you know, he's got a desk job. I have a job where I have to scream at four children. I have to teach a class of yoga students. I have to talk on a podcast. He truly doesn't understand that my voice is quite precious to me. Yeah. And so really I'm not going to sit side by side drinking a coffee with someone I'm interested in. So I have to say no, I have to set some boundaries because I need to keep working. So his suspicious um, approach to this choice I've made not to see him in the short term is actually kind of comforting because I think, okay, he's a bit normal, he's a bit paranoid. But then he'll go into this overly emphatic, excited dialogue about my kids. So which is it? Have you asked him? Have you called him on this behaviour? I haven't called him directly, but I have said jokingly, oh, no, I don't buy a new dress and then get my four little ducklings in a row <laughs> and model it for them. That seems a bit weird. And to be quite honest, if I did that, they'd all look at me with their noses turned up going, can we play on our iPads now, Mum? Yeah. <laughs> and what I do do is I test the boundaries or I test where he's coming from. I'll say something like, I know you really want to speak to me, but I had to yell at my daughter so loudly that my voice is at an all-time low. And he'll say something like, oh, you need another adult to help you out and, you know, it would be nice if you had someone in your life to 
be there for you so that when you did need to rest your voice, you could. Oh, so that's too much, <laughs> too much. Yeah, it oh. is. But then is that just, you know, you've got to give people the benefit of the doubt. Is he just trying to really ham up the fact that my kids don't worry him? The bottom line is you are just sending words to each other on a screen. You have no idea. I have no idea. I feel like you either need to pause communication until you get your voice back because either he is projecting a whole lot of stuff onto this, you're trying to analyze it, and it's just words. Like you just don't know. I feel like it would be a really healthy thing to do to just go, hey, can we regroup in a week? Hopefully my voice will be back to normal then, and then let's just catch up. Um, yeah. And then you'll be able to get a sense for it in person because you can think about things before you write them with text and maybe he's doing it deliberately, but in person you'll get a better sense. Well, you know, I agree with you and I've thought about doing that, but I don't want to say or suggest something that I'm not going to follow through with and I think that's part of my personal growth. You, I know, have been in this situation in the past where you've developed a connection with a person and this is where I'm currently at and you have engaged in that really trivial banter via text back and forth Mm -hmm. and it's just so comfortable and it's so convenient Mm. and it's actually really nice to have that consistent adult interaction when you are in my position and you do have four kids and you don't have much time to be able to slot in such intense consistent communication during your day so on one hand I'm aiding and abetting it because I do like the frivolity of this incessant communication that really doesn't require too much commitment but yeah I'm gonna think about it and see if I can seriously put a pause on it but Look, if that's the role it's playing, and I get that, and I get that it can be okay to receive frivolous messages from another adult, although sometimes it's just annoying, but it's like if you do that, don't overanalyze it then. Like you have to just drop all this analysis mm. because it's just wasting headspace to you. You've got so many other things that you need to be thinking about right now. and could Because be thinking, I've got four children. <laughs> you've got four children and other things going on in your life. So I just think if if that's comforting to you, the frivolity and the back and forth with another adult, then go for it and stop the analysis. Or if you're being consumed by the analysis, I would just put it on pause until you can actually just meet in person. Okay, you've got me thinking. I'm going to say to him, I'm going to call it. I'm going to say I'm getting a little bit triggered because we have we have spoken for a while now, so I feel comfortable. I'm getting a bit triggered by you always referring everything I say back to my four children. I don't want to discuss it yet because I think it's a verbal conversation at the very least. So while we're having this rudimentary banter back and forth until I can feel I can have a conversation verbally with you, can we not talk about my kids? I think that's fair. I will look forward to hearing how that is received. Our guest on today's show is Dr. Simon Moss, who is the Dean of Graduate Studies as well as an Associate Professor in Psychology at Charles Darwin University. Simon's a registered psychologist and has published about 10 books and 90 papers all around how we think, feel and behave. I've known Simon for many, many years and he is like a walking encyclopedia of scientific findings. So I was very excited to have him on the show to talk about what science can tell us around dating and relationships and how to have more success in those areas. So let's head on over to Simon. Simon, welcome to the show. Hello, how's it going? Very well. Now, you are here to provide a scientific point of view on the world of dating. And I know that you are someone who just immerses yourself in the research and particularly the counterintuitive research in psychology that tell us things that maybe were not so obvious. And I want to start with helping people make better choices because I know a lot of listeners would be using online dating to make choices where you've kind of got limited information. And, you know, something I wonder about, like, is it true that birds of a feather flock together or or is it the opposite? Well, it, it is both, which makes things very complicated. And so obviously you want a more specific answer than that. So let me give it to you. Because, I mean, there are benefits with both differences and similarities. And when you really understand the benefits, you know which similarities to choose and which differences to embrace. 
So, so the benefit of differences is that we're actually attracted to differences because they start to feel like they're expanding who we are. It's like we, we own the other person's attributes. So, for example, if we tend to be quite introverted and we start to date or develop a relationship with someone who's extroverted, we start to feel that we've actually developed that attribute. And even studies show that when you then ask someone whether they're introverted or extroverted, it takes them longer to answer because they've sort of got now both qualities, their own quality and their partner's quality. So for that reason, we love people who are different because they expand who we are um, and make us feel much better ourselves and enhances our relationships. On the other hand, we, we like to feel a sense of connection. It's incredible how subtle similarities make us trust people. So even people with the same initials as us tend to be seen as more trustworthy or even some other sort of bizarre idiosyncrasy. Wow. So that means for me, because my initials are AI, so I could maybe start dating like robots. A computer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a computer. <laughs> and I mean, so, so you want some of those similarities, you want the differences, of course. So which differences and which similarities? Well, from that perspective, it suggests that you want a difference that someone has a quality or attribute that you're almost seeking, that, that you almost would have liked, you know, in another life and that feels like it's expanding you. You want some similarities that are quite unique to you, but as well as similarities in, in values of the way you perceive life, because that can sort of influence every sort of interaction you have. But, but the other complication with that is that actually earlier in the relationship, we tend to embrace differences much better than later in the relationship. And that creates a real complication because it may be we become attracted to someone who shows some fundamental difference to us early. And it's that difference that actually aggravates problems as the relationship proceeds. And so I guess with similarities around values, because I guess that that's an interesting one and this is common advice, pick someone with similar values, but how do you even really know what matters to you? What are your values? And I'm not sure if that's a stupid question, but I feel like a lot of people don't spend time reflecting on what their fundamental values are. No, absolutely correct. It's, it's a, a really important question. And most people don't have a great sense of their values. What they have a better sense of is what they like to say their values are, you know, what is supposed to be acceptable in their social circle, and that's what they tend to parrot. Now, there are some bizarre studies that indicate that actually when we're not sure of what our values are, what's really important to us, it's overrided slightly by actually just literally, I mean, strangely, clenching your left fist for a couple of minutes. And for some bizarre reason, when you clench your left fist for a couple of minutes, that particular movement activates some areas of the pre-motor cortex in, your, in the left hemisphere of your brain. And for some reason, that seems to activate another region close by called the left orbitofrontal cortex. And in, in very simple terms, that seems to be where your values reside. Now, although that's a, it's a pretty strange way of describing, it does seem that after people undertake this movement, clenching their left fist, particularly if they're right-handed, even many left-handed people, they just have a better sense of what's important to them rather than what's important to the rest of the world. Now, of course, you can't ask your partner to clench their left fist to find out their value. That seems a little bit strange, particularly on a first date. But you, you can make people feel safe. When, when people feel safe, when you're really talking about what's important to you in a very honest way, other people will tend to follow. And you're saying things like, look, I, you know, I tend to tell people this, but sometimes I feel this about myself. I sometimes feel that really what's important to me is my family uh, or even power or whatever it might be. When, you, when someone starts obviously speaking honestly and safely about themselves, the other person's also more likely to reciprocate. And are there tests out there or psych assessments that can help us identify our values while clenching our left fist, of course? <laughs> There are tests available. There are just like special little computer tests where basically what it works out is that if you respond very quickly to particular words with one hand and the same words with the word about yourself, in other words, if, if you can connect particular values with words about yourself, like me, my, um, there are various computer tests that do that. That suggests that you hold those values. So it can be done, but it's not really freely available, but it may be worth sometimes contacting your local psychology department at the university and seeing if they allow you to use some of these tests. What are, what are the names out of interest? Do you know the names of these yeah, tests? Yeah, I mean, the, the classic one's called the implicit association test. And it, it may be, you might be able to find it online. Okay, I will, I will see if I can and link to that in the show notes. I think I might have done that one during my psych studies. Okay, so, so similar values. I think that's really interesting around the differences and how the differences will 
almost rub off on us via osmosis. Does that really just apply to differences in personality traits? Is that what we're talking about here? In some ways, values are a little bit different to personality traits. And so the similarities in values that's so important doesn't necessarily apply to similarities in personality traits. And probably the best example is that sense of the extroversion-introversion concept. And this is not just in romantic relationships, but in relationships in general, that often they proceed quite effectively when one person's a little bit more extroverted, they're a little bit more dominating, not, not overly so, and the other person's obviously a little bit more introverted and less dominating. And in fact, we've even find with relationships, and this is just any conversations, that they tend to proceed most effectively when one person at any moment will take on the more dominant role and the other person takes on the more submissive role. They can shift those roles over time, but at any moment you want one person to be maybe asking the questions or leading the conversation and the other, other person more responding. In fact, we even find with body language that that mix works very well. So, for instance, that the conversations tend to be best when one person takes on more like a, a dominant, even gestures and mannerisms. So they might be you know, sitting back on their chair with their arms sort of away from their body and so forth, suggesting a more dominant structure. And the other person might be sitting, maybe leaning forwards a bit and a bit more of a closed posture. Their arms are basically, for example, in front of their chest. And we've found that when actually people converse in that particular format, where one person's got a dominant posture and the other person doesn't, the conversation tends to flow a lot better. That's fascinating. Uh, and the two dominant people just feel like they're in competition. And, and two statistic people just feel like they're sort of struggling for the conversation to proceed. They, they don't know where to take it. They feel a little bit uneasy. So I think a problem that I have, because a large part of my job is interviewing people for this podcast and also for the How I Work podcast, and I find it now so easy and natural to slip into, I guess, what would be the dominant role in conversation? Because I, I love learning. I'm curious about people. If I'm on a date with someone, presumably I'm feeling pretty curious about getting to know them. But then what I find challenging is I might leave the date and go, oh, I found out all about them, but they know nothing about me. And that's a frustrating experience. So how do we swap those roles, if you like, where we're more comfortable in one of those roles? But obviously, if we're only in one of those roles, that's not conducive for having good dates. Yeah, that's right. So look, I'm imagining what can happen to a lot of people in a dating situation is that, I mean, they're slightly nervous, right? Even if they're excited, they're still slightly stressed by the circumstance. So they naturally progress into what's comfortable for them, what seems to work for them. And I'm assuming that could be happening to, to some degree. Even if you're, you don't think you're nervous, you're still going back to your dominant strategy because that seems to work. And that dominant strategy seems to be the, the person to ask the questions um, and to listen. And, and obviously the other person enjoys that. And so the question becomes, how do you break away from that? How do you take a risk in that, in that sense? And I suppose my, my advice to that would be, I think you should always actually conceptualize dates, not just as something you need to get right, but as a challenge to try new things, to extend yourself, to say things you might not otherwise, whether it's to admit things you might not otherwise, or even take on a role or mindset you might not otherwise. And I think when you, when you conceive dates more as a challenge to grow and to learn and to develop, rather than as a setting in which you need to thrive, you're naturally more likely to take on different roles and I think you're also naturally more likely to you know, accept any problems that arise within that date. Oh, I like that. The goal-oriented side of me, that, that really appeals because I find myself thinking when I'm on a bad date, this is such a waste of my time. But maybe if I actually set a goal, then it would feel like I'm actually growing as opposed to completely bored or frustrated and wondering about my exit strategy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now, you touched on body language around dominant, submissive body language. What else can science tell us about 
body language and how we can use this in dates. And I, and I guess, you know, one question that probably a lot of listeners have is how can I tell if the other person is interested in me based on what their body's doing? <laughs> well, I'm sure there are fairly obvious clues, like the fact that <laughs> they're not uh, trying to leave after half an hour is probably helpful. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, so, so for example, it tends to be that people tend to look more attractive when somehow there are more cues towards their face. So, for example, if he's wearing a, like a small hat that just seems to guide people's attention towards the face, they tend to be perceived as more attractive. Now, I'm imagining that, therefore, probably over time, we've evolved to try to direct attention to our face when we want the other person to, to find us attractive. And so it might be just, you know, even just touching the face, you know, not necessarily, not hiding the face, but touching it just, you know, where your, your hands maybe just under your chin or something like that. That's probably a cue because it's probably evolved over time to direct attention towards the face and enhance the, uh, the extent to we, which we perceived as attractive to the other person. Right. So if the person that we're on a date with is touching their face a bit, assuming like in a non-disgusting way, like wiping their nose or something like that, then, then we can maybe assume that they're interested because they're drawing attention to their face. Is that right? Look, if that were, to some degree. Now, of course, it's not the case every time, but it'll certainly make us feel better if, that's, if they do start uh, directing attention towards their face. And obviously, if they've come wearing a hat, then they're obviously really into us. Either that or they're, they're bald. So, yeah. <laughs> Either or. What about clothes? Hats aside, what, what should we be thinking about how we dress on dates? What can science tell us around how do we know what to wear? There is findings that suggest that red clothes, in both men and women actually, tend to enhance the extent to which we perceived as attractive. Um, we just associate the word red, particularly in these sort of um, romantic situations, as a colour that's associated with sexuality. And so it just evokes thoughts around sexuality and increases attractiveness. So that's the basic finding. So red clothes, red accessories, to some degree, is, is probably the, the simplest message to provide. And then, of course, and many people know of clothes that make them look more attractive in a whole range of ways. So even the obvious advice you often hear um, in the media yeah, has actually been demonstrated to be correct. You know, around lines, for example. So vertical lines create a particular shape. Horizontal lines create different shapes, depending on what you like. And so, for example, a male who wants to increase the perceived size of their chest to look more dominant, which some women but not all women will respond to, might therefore be more likely to wear horizontal lines in some ways, or something that creates this horizontalness that creates sort of slight bias to what, the way they look. Ah. Very interesting. I like the tip about red. That's like a really easy one to apply. Is there anything else visually that we should be thinking about doing on our dates or that we should be looking for in the person that we're on a date with? Look, probably not, in the, only in the sense that we do this anyway, right? Like we, we're very good at this. You know, even though people will often say that men are more visual than women in, in, in some respects, nevertheless, this is something that both sexes are very sensitive to. And our fundamental intuitions around visuals, how to make ourselves look better and how to read the other person, tend to be quite accurate. We're quite visual. And, and because of that, we sometimes overlook other senses, yeah, even the way we feel. So a very simple example is that we actually tend to feel more stable in our relationships. And this is not necessarily the first date, but after several dates, when we almost feel like we're committed to some degree to the person, while we're sitting on a very sturdy chair, I mean, as bizarre as it sounds, when you're just sitting in a stable chair and you feel stable as a consequence, that tends to just bias the way you perceive the world around you and then extends or projects into the relationship. So it means that you probably don't want to have a date on you know, unsteady chairs or, or maybe in bean bags or something like that. You, know, you want that sort of sense of stability. Wow. And then I'm thinking if you're at a bar and there's a couch or there's bar stools, you probably want to sit at the bar stools, I'm thinking? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Partly because I could have fall off anyway, which is, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now you mentioned the other senses. So I went on a date a couple of weeks ago with a guy and he just, he stunk. It was such a bad smell. It was like bad cupboard smell, like clothes had been sitting in the cupboard for a year, not worn. And he'd 
put them on, especially for this date. And what do we know about smell? Because I feel like I've read that different people will smell differently depending on how compatible they are with each other. Is that true? What can smell tell us about whether we're compatible? Yeah, look, and it, it, it's a little bit complicated by the fact that we, we obscure our, our usual smell. So those studies that you referred to are very accurate, but they may not be that practical because it basically shows that, yeah, when if we like the smell of the T-shirt that our potential partner is, was worn, say a T-shirt they wore for a few hours, then that's a good sign. We, we, we do have this unconscious sense of the smells we like, and evolutionary, it's been shown that those individuals tend to be most suited to us for a whole series of ways. They seem to sort of even complement our fundamental sort of biological and immunological tendencies. But that, that may be overridden by, by the perfumes and colognes that we wear. So apart from perfumes and colognes, and, and, and there's a few issues to consider. So firstly, try and, if you are going to add a smell to yourself, obviously try to make it reasonably faint. Because the more we're aware of it, the more we almost feel like we're being manipulated. And, and if we feel that we're being manipulated by someone, we tend to overcompensate. We, we almost consciously or unconsciously nullify the effect of their smell. We think, well, they're, they're almost trying to manipulate us. We can't trust them as much. And, and this is true with any time we're trying to market or influence or persuade someone. You know, we want to do it in such a way that they don't feel like they're being manipulated. It's not so obvious that these cues, such as smells, are being imposed on us. Some people are almost just, they're trying to influence too much. And they, I suppose they recognise that some smell is good, so they're just doing more. There's always that sense that if some is good, more is better, and that's obviously not always the case in, in many situations, including this. There are some smells that are just really quite helpful. I mean, it's been shown that you're more likely to be attracted to someone near a bakery. So somehow the, the smell of the bread can then sort of pervade in the way you think the other, the other person. So, I mean, that's where restaurants can be quite good because the first thing you often serve is bread as a taster. So that can be quite useful. So does that mean if we're inviting uh, our date over to our house that we should have baked some fresh bread that day, just like real estate agents do when they're having open for inspections? My only concern with that would be more like, you know, it just feels like we're over-preparing, you know? <laughs> the day, for God's sake. It's a nice habit to get into, you know what I mean? So rather than, you know, like, before the dates and manipulate all these things and worry about all of that, which creates worry, if you just live a life like this where you have nice smell, you know, you, you learn to bake bread, for example, or whatever it might be, and just become part of the way you live, then it's probably more likely to be effective. Uh, one of the positives from COVID, I feel, I think that certainly in Melbourne, where we've spent a lot of the year locked down, a lot of people have been baking bread. What else do we know about location? So dating at or near a bakery, tick, good. Anything else that science can tell us about ideal locations for dates? I know that we're more likely to trust people who live near us. Now, I mean, that, that doesn't, that's probably more about the selection or choice of people. Or it could create a problem. It could mean that actually, because we like people who live near us, if we find out that someone lives very close by, it might create a bias. We might like them more than we should. But anyway, that, that, that does help. So, but it might mean that actually the people might feel slightly more comfortable. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think this through. In a, say, a, a cafe that's closer to where they live rather than far, farther away. I mean, in, in some ways, the ideal would be to make people feel that they're in a familiar environment but not something they're bored by. Not that that's easy to find, but if you can almost find like a newer cafe near, near someone else's house, that isn't the person you're dating's place, that they may not have visited or they might have seen, I mean, that would probably be ideal. It's partly because people tend to be more trusting in a familiar setting, but you still want some excitement. So it's very important in dates, particularly earlier dates, to create just feelings of excitement, positive emotions, a sense of novelty and challenge. Because interesting, those, those feelings then tend to also project onto our perceptions of the relationship. So, you know, for example, even just in engaging something quite exciting together, maybe something that neither of you have ever tried before, whatever that might be, that evokes obviously feelings of excitement. And then those feelings have been shown to generalise to the actual feelings about the relationship and that other person. I feel like this is why on The Bachelor they always have quite adrenaline-provoking experiences for the dates to artificially create that closeness and intimacy. Have you heard that? 
Um, well, maybe. I, I, I don't <laughs> think that's why they're doing it on The Bachelor, to be honest. I, I think they just want people to find a way to, for people to watch that show. It might work in that sense that there is that excitement. I mean, that's right. They have this incredible adrenaline rush. There are strong emotions, and that might project to some degree in the way they feel about each other. It's obviously a very contrived situation, but it might work, yeah. Mm. Now, you referred to familiarity bias and in relation to people living nearby and they feel more familiar and then we might be predisposed or biased towards them. What are some other psychological biases that we need to look out for in dating that can get in the way of making good decisions about potential partners? Well, Probably a positive bias is, well, it's, it's the effect of actually committing. It's, it's, so this is a really fascinating area. And it's this notion that before we commit to someone, and it's a vague term commitment, but it, maybe before, while we're still judging them and evaluating, you know, whether we want to see them again or whether we want to see them several times or whatever it might be, before we commit in this way, we actually not that biased. That is, we're very aware of both their positive and their negative traits. Okay. And, and people who are a little bit more pessimistic will tend to be more focused on their negative traits. But once we commit to someone, and let's suppose like once we decide we want to marry them, it's the extreme case, but there are other forms of commitment, which I'll mention in a moment. Once we commit, we actually become more aware of their positive traits. Uh, and we have, almost have a bias towards their positive traits. And this is very helpful, of course, because if we didn't do this, we'd sort of always be evaluating people, aware of their problems, and, and we'd never really commit. We'd keep changing our minds, creating a lot of stress. So in some ways, this is a very positive bias, that once we commit to someone, we see them as almost better than they are for a while. And that can be very helpful. So then the question becomes, well, how can we extend that to dating? And my sort of recommendation would be, you know, obviously in the first few dates, you're not committed, you're obviously aware of people's negative traits and so forth. But then after five or six dates, when you decide, you know what, this, this could be okay, it would be nice to sort of agree to commit for a while. Not, not indefinitely, obviously, you don't want to get married straight away, but that sense of, look, why don't we just like do this for the next month or two months or three months or whatever it is, and not even evaluate, let's just enjoy it for three months, and then we can evaluate after that time. And that means you can enjoy some time while you're not evaluating each other, you're just enjoying it. And that, although that creates a bias, which you might think is problematic, that bias is quite important. It's what's necessary to create the momentum that's, that is often needed to get through difficult moments, to develop the relationship and foster an understanding of one another. That's interesting. Just say we get resistance from the other person, because I know you you have given me this advice personally with my own dating life, and I... Did, did not get the chance to apply it. But just say, like, I mean, because open relationships are quite a big thing I'm noticing now that I've sort of been immersed in this dating world for about a year. How do we almost, I don't want to say convince because that sounds, I don't know, a bit negative, but someone that is on the fence but is going to reap all these positive benefits if they do commit? Look, it's a good question. And of course, commitment doesn't necessarily mean it can't be open relationship. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's not something I've experienced, but there might be still a sense of saying, look, we, we, will still, we should make sure that we're together for a certain amount of time, you know, let's say two months, and as, as if we're in a relationship. Now, if you think that can be, should be open or could be open, we, we can discuss that, but you might find that you can actually commit a certain amount of time while still being in an open relationship that's beneficial if it means that you're not really evaluating each other, that you've decided this is, this is who you are together. You're going to create this relationship, however that's formulated, just to reduce that sense that you're always evaluating each other. And look, I don't think you necessarily have to impose it to such a degree. Obviously, if someone's resisting you, don't want to push too hard. But it might be worth saying, look, I just don't want to sit there every day evaluating each other. Like, look, you know, we're going to find some things we don't like. We'll find some things we do like. With the things we don't like, they'll, they'll something we might be more comfortable with over time. It's hard to tell. So rather than even think about it, let's just embrace this. Let's enjoy it. I mean, when I say embrace it, commitment sort of almost sort of sounds like we're restricting it. But it doesn't need to be conceptualized that way. It's a sense of like, let's just enjoy this. Let's not worry about it. Make sure that we're together for a few months. Do things together. Like it might even be committing to different plans in the future. It might be a, a plus one for an event that's a month and a half away. Rather than see that as a constraint, so let's just embrace it. Even if we're a little unsure, we're just going to go for it. And that sense of just going for it can create that necessary momentum. Mm, that's cool. Okay. And now how about 
decision-making. That's the final thing I'd, I'd love to get your advice on. What can research tell us about how to make good decisions around whether to keep investing time in someone or even to go on a date with someone in the first place or whether to just let it be? Yeah. So look, the, the common advice for people is to say to trust your gut, to trust your instincts, right? Um, and to some degree, that's true. But there are some caveats to that. So the first is we, we can really only trust our gut with these decisions when we're actually feeling quite relaxed and comfortable. And probably to do that in the context of dating, we almost have to feel comfortable not dating that person. Like we have to imagine life without that person. Maybe we need to be aware of what we would do if the dating or the relationship dissolved, who we'd call, what, what steps we'd undertake. So we really feel comfortable not being with that person. So it's a genuine decision and we're feeling calm. And then we do something that just makes ourselves feel good about ourselves. It might be thinking about some of our strengths, our best qualities, what we've got going for us or something like that, or a situation that makes us feel good about who we are. Because it's only in those situations that our, our gut, our instincts or our intuitions tend to be the most accurate. When we're feeling quite stressed and worried and anxious, actually our, our gut reaction tends to be actually quite misleading. We tend to reach decisions that's more in our immediate interest, but not for the future. So actually sometimes when we're stressed, we might maintain a relationship that's not going to work in the long term because it helps us for now, even if it's going to create problems for the future. That reminds me of some great advice that I read about decision-making in the context of trying to remove emotions from decision-making. And it's it's called the 10-10-10 rule. So asking yourself, how will I feel about this decision 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, and 10 years from now? And it's a really good way of going, okay, well, 10 months, 10 years from now, if it really wouldn't have, you know, a measurable impact on my life, then it's, it's probably, you know, not a bad decision to make, even if in 10 minutes from now or even 10 days from now, I'll feel really sad or stressed or disappointed or angry or something like that. Yeah, I really like that advice. I think that works really well because, as you say, it reduces some of the intensity of the emotions when you think, for example, 10 years from now as well. But it's still about feelings because it's still asking the question, how do you feel about and your feelings are very important with these intuitive decisions. We can't work these things out cognitively all the time. You know, there isn't a formula. So you still have to trust your feelings, but not necessarily be biased by very strong, intense, uh, immediate emotions. Simon, my final question for you is if listeners want to connect with you in some way and find out more about the work that you're involved in, what is the best way for people to do that? So it's probably my work email, which is Simon dot moss m-o-s-s at c-d-u dot e-d-u dot a-u fantastic and i will link to your email address in the show notes simon it's been fascinating illuminating as always thank you so much for your time my pleasure so amantha tell me what was your biggest take home from your chat with simon there was a lot in there. Like Simon's so quirky with these research findings that he pulls up. I do like the idea because it's really simple of wearing red on dates. And I've got one red dress and I've got one red T-shirt. And now I'm thinking I need to get more red clothes. It's actually hilarious because I had a, a story. You know how Hinge will give you starting intro lines for your photos, like this was the worst experience of my life or name two truths and a lie and this and that. Well, this guy said the intro line was I cannot resist and he wrote a quote, a girl in a red dress. So when I approached him on Hinge, I wrote to him, I'm a blonde, dot, dot, dot. Brunettes look so much more classy and red. Would you mind if I wear black or something like <laughs> that? Just being a little bit flirty. Yeah. And do you know what he wrote back? He goes, you'll only look trashy in a red dress if you act trashy. Don't act trashy. <laughs> wear a red dress. And where would you like to meet? Are you serious? Yeah, I'm telling you, it's put me off red dresses and dating. So I don't know, I'm going to have to second guess this Simon Blake. Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking my red dress is going to get such a workout for my next few days. It might look a bit boho by the last day. It might. No, I'm, mental note must get more red in my wardrobe. But I also liked what Simon said around 
using intuition, but intuition really only being accurate when we're feeling relaxed about the situation, when it's when we can give or take it. Doesn't matter if we see this guy again or not, but just putting ourselves in a relaxed state of mind and then going with our gut. Because if we're stressed, then we're not making good decisions with our gut. So I found that distinction really interesting because a lot of people would say, oh, just go with your gut. But sometimes our gut doesn't serve us if we're feeling stressed. Well, it's interesting in a yogic belief, you actually cannot hear the voice of your intuition when you are stressed because the voice of your intuition is found in the form of a very quiet whisper. <laughs> and it, I'm not, are, there, are there some academic papers that have been published behind this, oh, Monique? <laughs> several. No, there haven't been this. Get over yourself, Amanda. Anyway, back to the peer-reviewed artic- journal articles on why one should do yoga in order to date effectively. No. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think that intuition is something that is a really worthwhile tool and I agree with Simon. I just also think that it's really hard to think intuitively when you're nervous. So That's so true. And Monique, this is our very last episode for season one of the show. This is the last time we're going to be speaking like on air, so to speak, for a little while. That is so sad. We might actually have to tell each other about our dating life over the phone. I know, without microphones in front of us. I oh, know. How are we going to do that? So look, if, if you've been listening and enjoying how to date uh we'll we'll be back i don't know maybe in a couple of months with season two and if there's stuff that you want to hear about topics you want us to cover guests that you want us to invite on the show our contact details are in the show notes so please do reach out or reach out to us on instagram or facebook we love hearing from listeners and we'd love to know what you would love us to cover in season two so thanks guys and when we'll see you when we're back for season two that is it for today's show if you have enjoyed how to date why not share it with other people that you think could benefit from some of the advice that we are offering and if you enjoyed this episode we would love to get your feedback please leave us a review in apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this show from and we will see you next time see you soon Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.